You're listening to Spice Radio, 1200 AM, and we are speaking to Margaret Adovgal, Managing Director at Resource Work Society. This week's topic is why the UK's currency is getting pounded and how Canadian leadership can be leveraged to aid our allies. Margaret, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here. Good morning. So first, let's get right to it. What's happening in the United Kingdom and how bad could it possibly get? Well, the loss of a monarch in recent weeks certainly hasn't helped matters at all. The pound crashing, that's of course the currency in the UK, has a lot more to do with the unique mess that's been brought to us by the Russian invasion of Ukraine and all the glaring holes in Europe's energy infrastructure that that has exposed. And of course, uh, Europe's uh, largest supply of natural gas uh, used to come from Russia, but now it's uh, barely sending anything at all. Uh, And even then, just uh, southern Europe along other routes uh, that are not the main supply through Nord Stream. Uh, The Nord Stream system uh, has already been largely uh, turned off, but with recent developments, it certainly won't be on track to be turned back anytime soon, as both the original pipeline and the completed but never used Nord Stream 2 expansion have mysteriously lost pressure. And uh, NATO and friends are pointing the finger at Russia, pointing... Uh, Russia's pointing the finger right back. But either way, that's just another troubling development. Uh, so even if things stabilize, uh, a situation in Ukraine, uh, hopefully sooner rather than later, for all the people in Ukraine that are suffering because of this war, the European energy situation probably won't get much better from that side. And bad it has certainly gotten. The energy supply has experienced a real crunch in recent months because of the war. Uh, that's led to skyrocketing energy prices. Uh, by families, businesses, small businesses and large, and many have been unable to absorb those costs, particularly in countries in Europe um, that have smaller economies. Um, But many governments have scrambled to provide cover, lest the whole economy tank completely. A month ago, energy analysts were predicting a massive subsidy coming down the pipe, especially in the United Kingdom, which is most cut off from the continent's energy supply and of course, that's exactly what has happened, and that's what's led us to the pounding that the pound has experienced. Um, that's that's a really, really challenging situation, uh, principally because the newly minted prime minister, Liz Truss, has announced huge measures to curb energy costs. Uh, her government has also taken steps to drop tax rates, and their logic is that stimulus might help prevent the economy from further cratering. And if the Bank of England is to be believed, not so fast. Lower taxes do mean more spending. More spending actually means inflation on top of all of the inflation arising from the rising price of just about everything. And these tax cuts that they have uh, recently announced have been called everything from, quote, moronic to inept madness. And the Bank of England, which, uh, like most central banks, has the really fun responsibility of mitigating financial catastrophe, has had to pull out all stops. They've uh, temporarily bought an unlimited quantity of government bonds to prevent disorderly trading from destabilizing the British economy. And ultimately, we'll see how this ends in the coming months. If Truss's bet pays off, short-term shocks might give way to slightly improved long-term results. But the situation for most Britons is clear right now. It's going to be a very rough ride, and everyday life is about to get dangerously expensive. As we all know, it's the working poor who are going to see the real pain. Uh, businesses are going to close. People are going to be put out of work. And it's going to get really, really difficult for folks to keep their homes and ensure that they have a good supply of healthy, nutritious food. 
Um, but that's being felt across the continent. You know, Italy is a really good example. Uh, the energy crisis and uh, the way Italy has experienced it has been an undeniable factor in some really troubling recent political developments. Uh, Italy's uh, political right has been blaming decisions made in Brussels uh, by the EU as uh, being the heart of the problems it faces. So for the first time in nearly a century, the country has elected a conservative leader, Georgia Maloney, uh, their new prime minister. So that's obviously, in addition to all of the economic instability and the security situation in Eastern Europe, another troubling piece as far as political destabilization and increased polarization. Mm-hmm. Now, we're all the way across the Atlantic Ocean. Is there anything that Canada can do at all to help our allies? Well, if uh, the actions of our closest neighbor, the U.S., are to, to be uh, taken as any guide, absolutely. They've been diverting all the natural gas shipments that they possibly can to Europe to try to quell some of the massive ripples coming from the shortage of natural gas. But Canada, meanwhile, is looking at longer-term bets. Uh, despite the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz coming to Canada last month with a proverbial cap in hand, uh, his efforts to secure more natural gas from a major supplier, Canada, were soundly rebuffed. And somehow the leading story coming out of that discussion was about hydrogen. Uh, but let me be clear, uh, examining new fuels, Canada playing its role as a global leader, seeking to get hydrogen and other clean technologies to market, that's a good thing. It's a necessary step forward. Uh, we need to transition our economies uh, to respond to climate change. But it is a bit of a muddled response to an immediate problem in a world where fossil fuels are still king. Recently, Europe's most energy-intensive companies have massively scaled back their operations. Fertilizer, steel, all sorts of industrial manufacturing have really, really taken a hit. And that's all happening because of the incredibly, prohibitively high gas and power prices. And so many of these plants, uh, I think I mentioned fertilizers, aluminum is another one, uh, are closing shop, which has global consequences. There's also a massive, massive challenge right now with uh, grain supply. Uh, you know, you don't just need energy for uh, all the other things I mentioned, but you do need it as part of our food supply globally, too. You need it to dry crops, as many Canadian farmers will tell you. Uh, you also need energy to transport food products. Um, so I think in a general sense, even if we're not able to immediately meet Europe's needs, and it's a bit of an embarrassment, frankly, that we have now positioned ourselves to be a solutions provider to our allies. We do need to do everything we can to position ourselves to provide support into the long term. So bolstering our own economy short and long term should be the order of affairs. There's a great opportunity coming up with uh, major natural gas, liquefied natural gas export facilities uh, on the horizon for Canada. And I think in a general sense, Uh, If we want to acknowledge the reality that fossil fuels continue to be the way the world does energy, it's uh, something like 80% of the world's uh, use uh, comes from fossil fuels, um, then we have to be smart and we have to be responsible. We can't only look at long-term transformative technologies. We also need to look at the short-term and what we can do to ensure that we weather the storm here and we help contribute to a more stable, prosperous, and secure world for everyone. Now, Margaret, just yesterday there was a big announcement about Indigenous equity participation in major projects. What can you tell us about that? That's right. Uh, in North America's largest energy-related uh, Indigenous partnership, uh, Enbridge, a uh, Canadian company, is going to sell over a billion dollars 
of a minority stake in seven Alberta oil pipelines to a group of Indigenous communities. Um, and that was just announced uh, literally yesterday. Um, that's the continuation of a trend that is actively remaking the future of Canadian energy. I think in the last decade we've seen a lot of uh, you know different debates happening about whether we should be producing and exporting fossil fuels. Um, I think everything uh, that has happened in Europe and around the world with energy recently has been a very, very sobering reminder of the need to not snooze on uh, the things that make the world run. Um, but in the meantime, you know, partially owing to public pressures, uh, partially thanks to the phenomenal work and leadership the Canadian energy sector has been demonstrating for many, many years in furthering the local communities. Uh, we've been absolutely leading the world in driving towards a new way to build energy infrastructure. And if you look at our province, British Columbia, on the west coast, northwest coast, uh, in Kitimat, the Haisla Nation is a phenomenal example of a community that has taken a real ownership stake in the projects that are happening in their backyard. And it's not just a great opportunity for First Nations, Métis, and I guess maybe even in some cases Inuit communities, although I think it's mostly First Nations and Métis that are involved in the energy sector in this sense, uh, for them to create sustainable own source revenues. But it's also a phenomenal opportunity for us to signal in a stronger way that Canadian energy is produced socially, responsibly. It's done with the highest environmental standards. And it's really about meeting the needs that consumers, regulators and the world place on a fuel source that we all need. Mm -hmm. And one more thing, Margareta, the United Conservative Party in Alberta is heading towards a decisive leadership vote in the coming weeks. Any predictions? Well, I do have one. Uh, Former Wild Rose leader and radio personality, Danielle Smith, is definitely the front runner. And I I think I've heard this race referred to as hers to lose. But, you know, if she fails to cinch it, it's a very densely packed race. There are six or seven other contenders. Uh, Travis Tave um, is another name that I've been hearing. And um, I think in a general sense, what happens in Alberta doesn't just affect Alberta. It's policies, it's approach to things like the health and the future of the Confederation uh, do have ripple effects that uh, impact our ability across the country to have trust in in government and to uh, move together in unity on resolving some of the biggest challenges we've had probably in a century. I mean, excluding maybe the Second World War, but we're certainly in difficult times. And um, it's really going to come down in this case to a mix of the urban, the rapidly changing urban environment in Alberta. Uh, There's been a tremendous influx of newcomers to Alberta. um, That's a large part of why the NDP saw its first victory in decades, uh, electing uh, Premier Rachel Notley. Um, But of course, uh, there was a pushback to that, and uh, the United Conservative Party uh, is once again in government. And the results of this race will come down to that balance between urban-rural perspectives. And I'm hopeful that whoever becomes the next premier is able to work with the rest of Canada. I know there's been a bit of a loss of trust. There's a lot of talk right now about fairness for Alberta and ways of ensuring that uh, you know their economy, if it's doing well, isn't constrained by decisions being made thousands of kilometers away. But uh, I think it's important that we all approach this with the spirit of collaboration because strong national unity consensus, those are the ways that we weather the storms that are coming in the coming decades, maybe even the next century. Mm -hmm. That's right, Margaret. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. You take care. You too.